Very cool. Well, good to see Nathan and Nikki. These are friends of Sophie and mine, and I sent them to the wrong address this morning. Uh, like someone's house. Yeah. So sorry about that. Yeah. Cool. That's friendship, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well. Uh, very cool. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? Ready. <laughs> okay. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A.W. Tozer writes the following. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is not only true of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Beautiful. I am challenged by this. What is it that comes into my mind when I think of God? Not what I think I should think, not what I know the right answer to be, but what I actually think when I think God. The very deepest kind of thinking below my level of consciousness, soul and body thinking. Do I feel safe? Do I feel loved? Does my heart leap? Do I move closer? Do I move back? Do you feel safe? Do you feel loved? Does your heart leap when you think of God? Here's another thought. C.S. Lewis writes, perhaps in response, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. 
it is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. But so it is. I'm challenged and I'm curious. What is it that God thinks when he thinks of me? When I come into God's mind, what comes to God? Good, love, holy, blameless. What is it that God thinks when God thinks of me? Between this tension, I want to place one word. That word is father. I'll use the word think here as it was both what Tozer and Lewis used. But when I say think, I don't mean it in a rational, logical, heady kind of way. I mean it in an all-encompassing, intuitive, soulful way. Thinking is something you do with your life. Out of that, when we think of God, do we think Father? Or God, when he thinks that his thoughts are inescapably and unchangingly fatherly? And importantly, what is the nature of those thoughts? Gracious, kind, loving, judgmental, critical, distant. Soph and I have had a bit of a week. Uh, Monday morning, 5 a.m., Soph and I awoke to the rain. A stronger than usual downpour and what we thought may have been our gutter overflowing. Now, this has happened before and we didn't make too much of it. Moments later, after I rolled back under the covers, Soph, surprised, said her pillow was wet. Instantly, I questioned if I had left a tap on or maybe I had flooded the laundry again. Before I had even had the opportunity to run through all the possible causes, Marcel, the carpet is wet. Honestly, I didn't believe what I was hearing. Soph was right. I found the carpet under my feet was wet too. Like amateur sleuths, we tiptoed through the house, splashing down the hallway, squelching across the carpet. This wasn't an isolated event. What once was our floor was now an indoor water feature. Our entire house had been flooded. This is not what you want to wake up to at 5 a.m. on a Monday morning in November. It's in moments like this I find my heart, my mind, and somehow my body longing for dad. Does that ring true at all to any of you today? Have you ever found yourself out of your depths, 
overwhelmed, perhaps confused or in a foreign country, out of your comfort zone and saying to yourself, dad would know what to do. Or just that sense that if dad were here, he would be able to help me. Perhaps you can think of a time when your dad came through. He came to the rescue, he stepped in on your behalf. Or perhaps for some of us, we're more familiar with the experience of longing for a dad to step in who never did. Longing for a presence when there was only absence. This experience of desire, fulfilled or unfulfilled, I'm sure is a human universal. There seems to be something in us, something innately present, calling out a cry for a father. Yet in honesty, even the best of dads will fail, will leave us disappointed and will leave us longing for more. Even the best of fathers wound us, affect us deeply and shape our lives. It seems the human heart longs for a father beyond our father, that we long for the acceptance of a father beyond the acceptance of our father, that we long for the love of a father beyond the love of our father. It seems then, as Augustine writes, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Lewis writes, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let me tweak this slightly and bring it into focus. If we find ourselves with a desire for the acceptance, love, safety, security, provision, and approval, that no father in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, made for another relationship. Up on the cards today is, is the topic, true love, the role of a father in our faith. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that this is kind of the second in a series where a couple of weeks back, we looked at Jesus, our example. And so we're looking at Father, true love. Not that this is a small topic. We've got love, Father, God, faith. Uh, there could be endless truths, sermons, talks, studies on all of these topics, let alone an exploration of them together. I think we should start at the beginning. But by the beginning, I mean your beginning, your parents welcoming you into the world, your mother, your father. Here you are. You're a complex being. You're a heart, mind, body, soul, complex, completely dependent on these two people. Whether present or not, in relationship with your mother or not, whether you know him or not, your father gave something of himself and that forever part of him is part of you. This person, this is our first picture of a father. This picture might be good, bad, a likely mix, or even a complete absence. 
before a father is God, a father is a person. That is to say, pulling this down to the here and now, fathers are people shaping our lives, families, communities, cultures, and nations. You and I are in the world. This world is a complex system, a network of cascading relationships, all interacting with each other over time. Fathers are part of this world. They touch everything from a newborn child taking its first breath to the worldview of a nation. Increasingly, the world's relationship to fathers is changing. Sadly, unsurprisingly so, we're living in a way radically different to how humans for thousands of years have lived. In that, we're living in the most fatherless generation in history where fathers are alive but not present. Somewhere along the way, something has gone wrong. Once stable staples of society the world over, close-knit communities of families, villages, where everyone was known, has been radically eroded by a multi-sided assault, replaced by radical individualism, a secularizing culture, and a pursuit of pleasure at all cost. Parallel to these philosophical changes, technological innovation, hand in hand, began to create opportunities for humans to see the world differently. As an example, contraception was not only a technology, it also had profound philosophical implications. Sex for the entirety of human history has been intimately tied to procreation. Conception severed this tie. Simply people could now participate in sexual acts without the once connected responsibility. Sex became about pleasure, fulfillment, personal happiness. Raising children became a different decision altogether. Men in particular have benefited from this philosophical revolution, pleasure without responsibility. This amongst other world changing ideas has had a profound effect on fathers and particularly their children. I wasn't able to track down Australian statistics very easily but I found some recent insights from the US that I think will give a clear picture on how fathers and their absence affect children. When a child is raised in a father absent home, they, they are seven times more likely to become pregnant as teenagers. They are two times more likely to drop out of school. They are at two times greater risk of infant mortality 85% of youth in prison have an absent father, and fatherless children are more likely to offend and go to jail as adults. Um, father absent children are consistently overrepresented on a wide range of mental health issues, particularly anxiety, depression, and suicide. This is just a small sampling of the impact of fathers, absent or otherwise. This is all to say, despite the narrative that is popularizing, fathers have and continue to deeply affect children and consequently the life outcomes for these, for these kids. A quick search on Google for the term father wound reveals 87 million results. 
What is offered is mostly tips and techniques, retreats and quick fixes. Reading between the lines, this isn't a niche or small issue facing society. This is a hidden epidemic of sorts. We see the symptoms across our world. We attempt to heal them with ever, without ever looking at the root causes. As society seems to be one of wounded souls limping through life. Where can we find help? Unique amongst all religious figures, Jesus, his favorite way to address God was with the noun father. This is curious. See, there are plenty of names people have used to describe and address God and gods. There is a vernacular, a dictionary of sorts. Yet Jesus emphasizes one significantly and noticeably so. Honestly, uncomfortably so. The implication for using a term like father is that it means something. Putting it simply, the best way I can think of describing it, it means close. Now, what I mean by that is many names, terms, descriptions, cultures uh, have, have the names that they've used to address God and gods throughout time are descriptive in nature. Apparently, there's some 2,500 deities, all with names, and I imagine many, many more. There's God to start, Alpha and Omega, Holy, you know the list. Then there's the host of gods that are named after things they have authority over or influence for. Pluto, the god of the underworld, Mars, god of war, Set, god of chaos, Ra, god of the sun. There's even the gods of wine and beer. A small sampling for you. We have Aizen, Shinto god of tavern keepers. Bamagul, spirit of drunkenness. We have Bez, the Egyptian god, protector of the home and patron of bear brewers. Uh, Sarah Ron, who watched over the mixing of wine with water. We have... Onotrope, the Greek goddess, uh, a woman who changed anything into wine. Uh, we have Cyrus, Mesopotamian goddess of beer. It's quite the list. And I think my, my personal favorite um, is going to be this Zulu goddess called Nokhulbolwane, a goddess of the rainbow agriculture, rain, and beer. That, that is a closed-loop production, farm to cup. It's, it, that is very 2020. As an aside, hilariously, I think these gods are doing alive, uh, are alive and well. Sunday afternoons, god of the IPA. <laughs> yes. What strikes me about this list? They all feel far. Powerful, yes. Impressive, yes. Useful, yes. Worthy of partnership, perhaps. I mean, if I was an early Roman and Mars was going to help me win some wars, 
maybe setting up a little deal would be great. But close? No. Jesus not only claims to have come from heaven to earth, a radical claim, why would the gods come to earth? But that he revealed through his teaching, prayers, and life that the God, the God who gives authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, set the captives free, this God is best addressed using the noun Father. While there are glimpses of addressing God as Father within the Jewish Bible, Jesus takes it to 11 in the example of his life, making it the primary way of addressing God and inviting others to do the same. It's easy to read the Gospels with a familiarity and assumed knowledge, glancing over what's in plain sight. Yet if you take a step back and count, there's an overwhelming pattern. Oddly enough, Jesus doesn't even explain himself. He just comes straight out of the gate referring to God as Father. The first use of Father referring to God in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 6, verse 36. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Putting yourself into this moment in time, would you have even known who Jesus was talking about? Later, he goes on to teach his disciples to pray. He says, start with our father. Still teaching, Jesus says, my father, offending the religious. Captured by the writer John, we see Jesus praying an intimate moment. Son to father, this is chapter 17, verse 22, 25, and 26. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is affronting. It is, however, a beautiful invitation. Jesus claims no one comes to the Father except through him. I use the word affronting deliberately. This is because it is easy to keep God at a distance. We do this deliberately, even subconsciously. We can do this through posture, through habit, practice. Markedly so, we do this through language. Listen to your language. Do you speak with intimacy, closeness, or distance and formality? Romans 8.15 
you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Strong's Concordance describes the word Abba in this way. Father, it is used as the term of tender endearment by a beloved child, an affectionate, dependent relationship with their father, daddy, papa. In other words, we have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry daddy, whom we cry papa. We use language that raises God high, that declares his might, wonder, and holiness, rightly so. However, in a sense, this can be distance. Yet Jesus, intimately acquainted with the character and nature of this all-powerful, all-creating being, more than any other, uses the word Father. The implication of this invitation is that if we are invited to call upon God as Father, then that radically changes the status of our relationship. If he is our father, then we are his children. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children. We are children of God. This leads us to the question of love. Leif Hitlin says, as, as comfortable as you are with love, you are with God. As comfortable as you are with God, you are with love. As comfortable as you are with the Father, you are with being his child. I say this because for reasons mentioned, and perhaps those felt in the room, parts of our heart can be very uncomfortable with love. Not for love, but through wounding and pain, we might seek to protect ourselves, creating a fortress of sorts that not only keeps the harm at distance, but consequently love too. These wounds only fester, grow, requiring greater protection and distraction. Souls becoming orphaned, isolated spirits, positionally distant from God. See, these wounds aren't healed by time, nor wisdom, self-help, hard work. They are healed by love. We can then find ourselves resisting the very thing we most desire. Lewis once more. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. 
They really mean that I have feelings of love, however and whenever they arise and whatever results they produce. I should be treated with great respect. Perhaps they are, but that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. Simply, a love relationship. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father. Before time's beginning and after its end, a self-sacrificial relationship of love is at the center of all things. It is from this overflow of love that you were conceived in God's mind. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As much as we know this, let us not become familiar with it. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sent by the Father. It's like the whole story of God and humanity is one marked by God's endless love pursuit of restoring relationship with his children. Friends, can we just take a moment to stop and pause, to take a breath? Can we in this moment just open our hearts to the spirit of God? I don't want us to miss this. If you're comfortable, could you just close your eyes and open your hands? I felt like the Spirit wanted to make this personal for you and I today. I'm going to read this passage over you, our Father speaking to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you for adoption to himself as a son, as a daughter, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed you in the beloved. Hmm. 
in love he predestined you. He predestined us before the foundation of the world, before the seen things, you, we were chosen. We were seen, we were blessed, we were marked, holy, blameless, that we were always going to be sons, always going to be daughters. Friends, you are chosen by a father who loves you. I'll be explicit. Our father isn't tolerating you. He isn't just putting up with your crap. He isn't in this with a sense of obligation, guilt or shame. He chose you. He calls you son, daughter, without any reservation or hesitation. His love isn't ambiguous. His love is explicit. I feel Lewis was right. I can know the thoughts that I have for God. I can contain them, hold them in my mind and heart. I can change them. They can be changed. They can be right, wrong, or the messy in between. Yet resting in his thoughts toward us, I cannot contain them. I cannot hold them. I can barely see a glimpse before it is too much for my frame to bear. How vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the grains of sand on the earth. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. Father, may we see you rightly. May we see you as you really are, as Jesus sees you and invites you to invites us to see you. May we experience and know the depths of your love for us. Father, you think of us. We come into your mind, and when we do, you delight in us. You smile and are filled with joy. Father, I ask for a revelation of the nature and depths of your love. Amen. Uh, thanks, Mars. Those are some, those are some great things to chew on. You were right when you started out, and you said this is a big topic. You can go a lot of different directions on, and uh, yeah, it's it's also like, uh, you know, probably one of the fundamentally most complex topics we could talk about. Like, it's not like I can just go, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's 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 accept that there's a father who loves us and that that's who God is. And you know, to, if we're being honest, I think we are entirely up against it in this category. Like, you know, if if your experience of an what whatever our experience of our earthly dads was is is like the lens through which we come to this title of father and that is both to our advantage and our disadvantage in in varying in different ways and 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 let, let's say in that category there were as few obstacles as any human being could have my picture of my dad was as close as a person could get to who our father in heaven was meant to be. And, you know, I'm not even too sure what would equate to that. But, but let's just say that's the case. Then I think even we as uh, Christian communities have put ourselves up against it as well. 
because whilst we've talked about God in certain terms, we've demonstrated a lifestyle that's incoherent with how we've spoken. And we're also up against it because we have so many examples of treating God like he's someone to perform for or please or follow the rules of or get it right with or look out for or hope that he would do something good for us or wonder why he does something so much better for someone else than he does for me. And, you know, we've ended up with these pictures that we've produced that's like, do better and get it better and get it right and you'll get the good God thing. And, you know, if, if even if our earthly dads didn't fail us, somehow we as a church have created this incoherent picture that goes, God loves you, but you better get it right. But what does that have to do with love? You know, we're, we're responsible for that in some senses. And I think if we're not up against it here, we probably are up against it here. And if we're not up against it there, we just might be up against it over here. And it's like, well, how then? How can we be people who are struggling towards opening our hearts up to a father who loves us in whatever way we can and confronting the pieces of our story wherever they exist that seem incoherent? with what we find in scripture or what we find in Jesus' example of how he treated his dad or what he expected from him. And yeah, I think, man, like to, to sum this up or to wrap this up in a, in a, in a truth that, that, you know, uh, delivers it. You could spend a year talking about this and you would have only just gotten started. Hey, Marcin, you said this even coming into it, but yeah, I think, you know, what an invitation as a, as a people to go, you know, I guess we're his kids. And what is it to be in his family? And what is it to explore in addition to receiving him in that way, uh, seeking the characteristics among us that he emulates toward us? You know, because I think it's got to get real and it's got to get practical and tangible. And, you know, I think we need to run into some walls and see uh, stories that tell us of the love of a father. And we, we have them in our own stories of our own dads. We have them in our own stories of who God was. You know, I mean, I mean, just this week, Leela and I, we drove out of, I was driving out of my driveway and there's this gentleman who was, uh, backed up a big tipper trailer on the block beside us with all this lumber or timber. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? This guy's dumping on the block. That's, this is my block to dump on. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be taking my tip spot. <laughs> Anyways, and so I stopped and he said, oh, I should introduce myself. I guess I'm going to be your new neighbor. Or maybe not, actually, because you're moving on. Because he saw the sign. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, oh, you've owned this for a long time. He said, yeah, seven years. He said, we're going to start building. And I said, when? He said, in February. And I went, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And uh, I don't know, Lila and I talked about it afterwards. And we were like, we've been confused about the timing of selling our house. Because it seems like it would have been much more advantageous and convenient to list in February. But all of a sudden, there's construction fencing up. There's all this timber over there two weeks after we've gone unconditional. And it's like, there's a lot of uncertainty around our property and what'll go up next door. It's probably one of the biggest. And so we're like, God, thank you. You know, that you saw what was coming and that as a dad who loves us, you asked to take us, asked us to take a step in a period of time where it didn't necessarily make sense to us. And, but you're a good dad. You got a good plan. And you're, you're writing a good story and you're forming an incredible family and I'm delighted to be a part of it. But I'm also, like you said, Mars, hesitant. And maybe like a step back or maybe my default isn't to go straight to a dad who could help me. And yeah, I really appreciated those reflections and the things that you had to, to share this morning. And I think this is an uncomfortable topic. 
you know? If we're honest, I think there's a degree of discomfort in this and I think that's okay. You know, like I think for generations, we've been struggling with the affection that Jesus came and demonstrated towards God when he called him Abba. And it's like, yeah, ooh, I'm not so sure. But it's like, well, let's wrestle that to find and discover the greatest dad the world's ever known. Let's let the love of a father confront the false pictures that have been created in our earthly dads or in our church experience. Let's, let's come toward a dad who's got good things for his kids. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mars. And I think...